Now, after we read that, notice in verse 1, uh, the story continues. Now, the king and Haman, Haman had been whisked away to that banquet, banquet that Esther had prepared. She had prepared another one because she was trying for the right timing to talk to the king about Haman's wicked plan. It says, the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. Now, as we've been reading the story, we know that Haman's undoing is looming in the air. But there's, an, there's another decree looming, and that is the decree to destroy the Jewish people in all the provinces, and that decree's still out there, and it's, uh, it's an irrevocable law of the Persians. And so now Esther is trying to save her people, and we can see that Haman's fall has been prophesied by the wife. Haman's been uh, weighed in the divine scales and found wanting. This is where I want to show you Proverbs 26. If you turn over there, and I want to remind you of something the book of Galatians says, and it says this. Don't be deceived. Turn to Proverbs 26. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows to, that he will also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap everlasting life. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Now what Haman is essentially doing is fighting a battle which has gone on really from the book of Exodus when the Amalekite people uh, did not treat Israel well. And I took you back to Exodus 17 when we opened the book and I showed you how the, the uh, Haman character goes all the way back to Amalek and the Agagite king and what uh, King Saul failed to do. And so God will have war against Amalek for all time, we're told in Exodus 17. So you have to look at Haman as representing this war. And here's what happens to a man like this. This is Proverbs 26, 18. It says, like a madman... Proverbs 26, 18, shooting firebrands or deadly arrows is a man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. Without, a wood, a fire, without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down, 21. As charcoal to embers and as wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to a man's inmost parts. Like a coating of glaze over earthenware are fervent lips with an evil heart. A malicious man disguises himself with his lips, but in his heart he harbors deceit. Though his speech is charming, do not believe him. For seven abominations fill his heart. His malice may be concealed by deception, but his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. And now these proverbial statements, they're generally true. If a man digs a pit, he will fall into it. If a man rolls a stone, it will roll back on him. A lying tongue, tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth works ruin. What we're going to have tonight as we look at Esther 7, if you turn back there, is Haman digs a pit that he ends up falling into. He rolls a stone that ends up rolling back on him. He's going to die on the most terrible death instrument you could ever imagine. And it's one that he built for another man. It's one that he built for his mortal enemy and it's going to come back right on him. 
And that's the irony of the story tonight. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, NIV. They had no idea how this night was going to turn. They had a little bit of a portent of it as the wife and friends speak into Haman's life. But notice in verse 1 it says, So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. You're just going out to dinner, man. How bad could it be? How bad could things go? You ever been there before? We're just going out to dinner. And then all of a sudden, the night turns, and things go south, and unexpected conversation leads to a snowball rolling in this direction, and you're like, how in the world did we get here? We're at Coco's. <laughs> this kind of stuff can't happen at Coco's, or Norm's, or wherever. We just went out to dinner. In Luke 6, 25, Jesus said, Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Numbers 32, 22 says these words, Be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, 22. You see, if we sow to something, eventually we will reap it. If we're sowing to the things of the Spirit, we will reap of the Spirit. If we are sowing to the things of the flesh, eventually we will reap a harvest in either direction. It is inevitable. It is the law of sowing and reaping. That's what the Bible talks about. And Haman has been sowing to the flesh. He's been sowing to corruption. He's been harboring hatred. He manipulated the king to get an edict out against the Jewish people because the king wasn't really paying attention, and because it was all about Haman's hatred of a single man who had become his idol. Just the fact that he would not bow down to him. And he's been manipulating, and he's been weaving his little web behind the scenes, and it's going to come back, and he's going to get caught in his own web. We talk about a web of lies. We talk about people who sow to these things and they begin to create this little world, this little tapestry, and it ends up becoming their own web. And that's what happens to Haman. You see, Haman is a man who's fighting God. And we can see the providential hand of God moving over this whole area of Persia because he's made a covenant to his people and he will keep the covenant. The whole story hinges on the king's single sleepless night his request for royal records to be read to him, the discovery of Mordecai's acts of service or act of service, the king's desire to honor him, Haman's arrival just in the court, just at the right moment, following a night where he constructed gallows for his intended victim Mordecai during the night. His plan re, uh, is, is put aside or thwarted by the king's question. He can't imagine the king wants to honor anybody else, so he thinks it's about him. And then Haman is humbled, we called last week divine backfire. And he goes through the city and he is humbled, humbled really to the ground. One writer says, divine providence is not always easily discerned, but God was working out his plan. The key event, the king's sleepless night, had nothing to do with Esther or Mordecai but instead was a seemingly insignificant detail in which the hidden hand of providence is discerned, though only with careful hindsight. Isn't that how life is? The intricate plans we lay can never come to fruition without God's providential blessing upon them, close quote. 
Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. We can make all these plans. We can say, we're going to do this. James says, you can say in a year, we're going to go to this city or we're going to go to such and such a city and stay there for a year. We're going to do this and do that. But James says, you don't even know what your life's going to be like tomorrow. You're but a vapor. You ever looked at a vapor? A vapor, you spray it into the air. You have one of those aerosol cans, you know, try to make a room smell nice. You spray it. It goes into the air and it dissipates rather quickly. Your life is but a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. So James, what are you saying? Here's what I'm saying. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will go to such and such a city and we will do this and do that. But as it is, you're arrogant. And all such arrogance is boasting. Because to him to know, who knows the right thing to do it and does not do it, to him it is sin. And so here's Haman. He's been humbled. Now you would think after that day of being humbled, he would have maybe looked in the mirror, taken a, another thought about his wife's words. You're going to fall before this man. If he's of Jewish seed, you're going to fall before him. You, you think, well, maybe he, he thought about that. But just then, as they were talking, he's whisked away. Dinner with the king and queen. What could be better? But the meal on the menu was hangman stew. <laughs> See, what he didn't realize was that the meal was him. Because Esther had been cooking up a storm, not because she just wanted to cook for Haman, but because she had something to unmask that was all about him. You see, he didn't know it, but he was on the menu that night. How many of you have watched the Twilight Zone episodes from years ago? There's an episode that I remember, and these aliens come down, and it's, it's like a black and white you know, Twilight Zone, and these aliens come down, and they're all nice to the human beings that they meet, and they're very polite and wonderful, and, and it's all about them serving men. We're just here to serve man. We're just here to serve man. We just want to serve you. How can I serve you? And then as the episode goes on, things get a little bit weird, and they discover a book that the aliens happen to leave, I think, you know, somewhere close by. And one of the humans see the book, and the book says how to serve man, and they open it, and it's how to cook man. All the various ways that you could prepare a meal. You see, how to serve man meant you're on the menu. (laughs) And then there's the twilight music. Sometimes we may feel like we're in an episode of the Twilight Zone, but that's for another another sermon. And the king said to Esther on the second day, this is another banquet, also as they drank their wine at the banquet, it's kind of like this, okay, Esther, okay, what, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. Now, note that she's called the queen in verses 1 and 2, and the only reason she's the queen is because of God's providential hand. We need to remember that. And he says, what's your petition? I think this is the third time he's asked her. It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be done. Esther's patience amazes the king. In fact, it's produced a hunger in him where he's just got to know what she desires. 
She didn't risk her life for nothing. She, she didn't come into the court uh, unsummoned for nothing. What is going on? And it's allowed for a perfect moment to reveal the truth. Esther has, uh, has to carefully reveal Haman's plot because remember, she is sitting at dinner with the two most powerful men in Persia. This is no light thing. Haman is the closest advisor of the king. He's probably a good friend of the king. So she's had to be very wise and shrewd about how she drops the bomb about what's going on. And so this is her moment. You see, she did bravely say, you know, if I perish, I perish. She did come into the court and got the scepter extended and touched it back and was relieved, but she still hasn't dropped the bomb yet. This is her moment. This is the time when, you know, you, you have to decide, okay, am I really going to follow through with this? And this is when you, you might be tempted to stutter or say, give me some water. I got a little bit of cotton mouth going on. Okay, well, the reason I invited you over is, is Haman looking right now. Maybe he's buttering his bread. You know, it's tough. Confrontation. How many of you struggle with confrontation? Confrontation's no fun. Even if you know someone deserves it, it's still no fun because you got to confront them. And that's not comfortable. And so she knew with a small intimate dinner like this, have you ever been there and you know you got to say something hard to somebody and you're like, okay, i got to wait for the perfect moment. Maybe have one more bite of the bread. Maybe I wait till the dessert is served, sweeten them up a little bit. This is her moment. She's risking everything. She's going to have to come clean about her ethnicity and the fact that she's covered it up for years. She's going to immediately, when she says who she is, place herself under the edict of death, associate herself with her people, and immediately be under that law of death. She really doesn't know for sure how the king will respond. And so the queen, third time she's called the queen, Esther answered and said, three, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given as my petition and my people as my request. Now the measured language that she uses is directly in keeping with verse two. The king said, what is your petition? What is your request? In verse three, she says, my petition is my life. My request is my people. If you want to know what I'm asking for, if you want to know why I've gone through all of this, what I'm asking you for, King, is my life. I'm asking you for the life of my people. Esther begins kind of rapidly putting it out there, but here it's almost an effort to keep her emotions in check. What I'm asking you for is that I don't die. Me and my people. She now essentially begs for her life and that of her people because the two are linked together. She cannot separate herself from their life and their destiny. She's Jewish. She's in the covenant. And Mordecai had told her, don't think that 
just because you're in the palace that you're not going to die along with this edict too. Who knows? Maybe you've come to royalty for such a time as this. And now she says, look, I am with my people. I'm asking for my life. I'm asking for their life. If I found favor in your sight, and I think it's more than just, you know, courtroom or uh, royal court etiquette. She needs the favor of the king right now. I'm asking for my life and the life of my people. When we're praying for people and we're interceding for people, especially as it relates to salvation, in many ways we are praying a life and death prayer. We're asking for the life of people that we love to find eternal life. And that's not a light thing. And so she's not looking for half of the king's kingdom. She has no material concern whatsoever. What she puts before the king is a life and death scenario. Now, if you're Haman there and you begin to hear some of this stuff, you're like, what? What's she saying? You could be midway through a bite of one of those nice little buns, you know. What? What's she saying? She says, for we have been sold for I and my people to be destroyed. Now, this is the direct language of the edict that went out, signed, you know, stamped by the signet king of the ring. We've been the signet king of the signet ring of the king. Easy for me to say. We've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, and the irony is that she had kind of been sold as a slave when she became the queen, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Look, this is a serious thing, but even that I wouldn't have brought up. But my people have been sold. My people are to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. She says, I wouldn't bring this up unless this was life and death stuff. Turn to uh, Esther chapter 3. Take a look for a second. This is some of the language that is mentioned. Esther 3, look at verse 8. Haman said to King Ahasuerus, 3.8, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, their laws are different from those of all the other people. They do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. 3.9 If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay. Remember she says we were sold. Uh, here Haman says I will pay. We, if we can just get this done, king, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. You see, essentially, Haman tried to bribe the king with money. And there's a little debate about what this means, but he may just be saying, look, if there's a loss, if all these Jewish people are killed and destroyed, and he doesn't name them as Jewish people back here, turn back to chapter 7, he keeps who they are actually hidden, but he's, he's essentially saying, I'll make up for the money. We'll either take their, their money or their possessions or some way we'll replenish the king's treasuries. Essentially, this is a bribe. And the king is so uninterested Apparently, he doesn't have a problem with genocide. 
that he just gives the signet, which is like his signature. Just give that to me and I'll sign it. Okay, fine, fine, let's get this done, good. You're my right-hand man, I trust you. It's in the king's interest to do this. And so, repeating that idea, you see Esther is talking to the king, but indirectly she's talking to Haman. And on a sub-level, it's something like this. King, we've been sold. We're to be annihilated, destroyed. We've been sold. I know what you've been up to. I know what you've been doing. Now, can you imagine? There you are, Haman. You get a little squirmy. (laughs) You see, all of a sudden, it's coming out. She makes her petition to the king, but... She is speaking to Haman as well. Have you noticed Haman hasn't said a word through the whole dinner? (laughs) I think it's becoming tougher and tougher to swallow his food. and He may be getting a little indigestion at this point during the dinner. I'm not hungry. No, I don't want seconds. And so the king Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther 5 back in chapter 7, Who is he? And where is he? And who would presume to do thus? The language may indicate stuttering surprise. Who is it? Where is he? This is kind of like what you say when you come home from work, guys, and your wife says, the kids have been a disaster, and they broke your favorite lamp. And you say to your wife, who was it, and where are they? Because <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're upstairs to the right. Okay. Wait here. (laughs) He might be thinking something like this. Not Esther. The king could understand threats against royalty, right? A a plot had been uncovered about his his own life. Uh, An assassination plot from Mordecai. He could understand that. That kind of stuff happens. But not Esther. What did she ever do to anybody? Beautiful. He might say innocent Esther. We could argue in one sense that Esther may have been the only light of God in his life. Because Esther does appear to be a believer, right? We don't know a whole lot because God's name's not even mentioned, but she has called for a fast. There is a faith there that we can read between the lines. And maybe the king is thinking, no, not her. Who Who would dare to want to destroy my wife, the queen? You may be the only person in some people's life that shine the light of God. Maybe you're the only Christian at a workplace. Maybe you're the only Christian in your family. And sometimes that's why the enemy turns up the heat in your life, by the way, is you may be having a bigger impact than you think. And when you get attacked spiritually, maybe that's a sign that you're doing something right. Now at this point, the king is saying, ESB, who has dared to do this? Point them out to me like the cowardly lion and the wizard. I'll tear them apart. I'll tear them apart. And technically, at this point, Esther could have said, well, the one who dared to do this, mirror, is you. She could have done that because technically the king had given his signet to the edict. And he didn't even seem to bother to find out who the people were. 
and the fact that he was married to one of them. And so he just gave a stamp of approval. Yeah, 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 let's get on with it. Sometimes people are trying to tell us stuff that's more important than we give a good listening ear to. What do you mean we sold the house? Yeah, I told you the other day we sold the house. <laughs> what? We're moving to Idaho. What? <laughs> Was the football game on? Yes. I told you never to talk to me. No crucial discussions when that's going on. That's why I talked to you while it was going on, so I could slip it on right by you. You do, huh? Yeah, huh? Uh huh? Yeah, huh? Now, the king was complicit. And like uh, Nathan said to David in Second uh, Samuel, she could have said, You are the man. Now, how would that dinner have gone for Esther? The king was complicit, but he wasn't the mover and shaker behind the edict. The one who came up with the language of the edict and the drive and the passion was Haman. The king was simply complicit because he didn't just seem to be a very good leader. So that wasn't going to work well, and that wasn't really accurate when we want to be technical. And so here is the dinner. I want you to see if you could imagine the palace and the candles and the food and what Haman's body language looks like at this moment. Because the king is upset. And Haman knows that the king has no problem with dealing with his enemies swiftly. <laughs> and so I don't know if he started whistling. <laughs> king, I got to go use the bathroom. Uh, My, 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 how quickly life can change. You go from one moment thinking the king wants to honor you in the royal robes on the royal steed. You're the man who was at dinner with your wife and friends. You were pontificating about your power and prestige, and you're the only one that gets to go to dinner with the king and queen. And I don't know if you knew this, honey, but we have, we have ten sons. She's like, yeah, yeah, I, I know how many kids we have. Oh, I just want to remind you about my grandeur and my glory here in the Persian Empire. <laughs> oh, the next day, you in trouble. Because pride goes before destruction. How quickly life can change. How pride can blind us. And Esther drops the bomb, spills the beans. She said, six a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Spotlight. Then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. The Hebrew is, Rao, <laughs> What do you do now? This could be rendered. A man hateful and hostile, hostile is wicked Haman. It's horrible Haman. He's the man. Judgment is thick in the night air. Me? me, me? I, 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 what do you say when you've been exposed? He has nothing to say. And then the king arose in anger. The king's fury is effectively communicated in Hebrew words, which sound like machine gun fire. You ready for a Hebrew word? He arose in anger is the word bakamatao. 
Pakamatao. <laughs> the king got up. Pakamatao. Pow, 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 pow. <laughs> he stormed out in the garden. The garden was supposed to be like a picture of paradise, you know, a beautiful Persian garden next to the palace, you know, a delightful place to, to be and hang out, but not tonight. The king was furious. Bakamatao! He got up from drinking wine. He was angry. He went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. He's mad, isn't he? Oh, yeah. He's mad. And isn't it interesting that he stays to beg for his life with the queen? He doesn't walk out with the king into the garden. He's the right-hand man to the king, but he knows the king's upset. So stamen, stamen. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's uh, fitting anyway. He stays behind to beg for his life. For he saw the harm, kala in Hebrew, frequently has the sense of taking someone's life. He, he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. I don't know if it was body language. Remember I told you that they found an archaeological evidence. Uh, they dug up some, something. It's a kind of a picture scene of a man who always stood behind the king with an axe. I don't know if he got up from <laughs> dinner, you know, put his dinner roll down, looked at the guy with the axe and went... <laughs> you, whatever it was, it didn't look good for Haman. And the tables have turned, and now he's begging for his life from Queen Esther because he could see the writing on the wall. Out the king goes, into the garden. But why? Why didn't he just turn to the guy with the axe or call the party in and say, he's dead, kill him? Why does he storm off into the garden? Well, because he's got a dilemma on his hands. Because technically, he's responsible for the edict. He signed it with his signet. And he's actually complicit in the charges that Esther has put on the table. Haman is the mover and shaker, but the king gave his royal signet to it. And therefore... If he says this is wrong, remember we've been talking about the laws of the Medes and Persians can't be revoked or rescinded. What does he do now? He's going to have to admit that he was wrong. And that doesn't look good for the king. Can he punish Haman for a plot he himself approves, says one writer? If he does so, won't he have to admit his own role, own role in the fiasco and lose face? Moreover, he's issued an irrevocable law. How can he now rescind it? What is he to do? He wants to take this guy out, but he knows on one level he's been played by the guy. And he knows that he's somehow accountable. So he may be pacing. I don't know how much time goes by. Take him out, but if I do this, and he's weighing it back and forth, and now, when the king returned, look at verse 8, he's going to get his answer, and you could say it's by providence. When the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Now, this is another irony. Remember, this whole thing started because a Jewish man wouldn't fall before him 
Now he's falling before the feet of a Jewish woman. To do what? To beg for his life. Please don't kill me. Please don't let him kill me. I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. It all started with my upbringing. I'm an Agagite. You know, it's just a problem we got. We, we have these tendencies. We have these Agagite tendencies to destroy and annihilate people. I'm sorry. I'll get counseling. Please. <laughs> well, the king walks in. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? Is he going after my wife? Just be, I walked out into the garden, and now he's doing this? Now, do you think that Haman really is trying to assault the queen or molest her or rape her? I don't think so. I think Haman is actually just begging for his life, groveling, in the ancient world, you would kind of get at the feet of a person that was above you, that could determine your fate, and you would just grovel before him. But they've come up with some uh, stuff from the ancient world that says, when it comes to the king's harem, if you're another man, you cannot be within seven steps of one of his women. And if you're within seven steps, and you want to make sure that you've done long steps, just so you're outside the circle, right? You could die for that. Even if someone else was in the room, you couldn't be even, you know, in the vicinity. And so all of a sudden, the king has found a way out. Because now he can accuse Haman of trying to mess with the queen. And now he has a reason to deal with him that has nothing to do with the evil edict. Aha! An opportunity! This is not the kind of king you want to work for. See, this is a king that does things for his own interests, not yours. You're good with this particular king as long as you're with the program and making him look good and making him money and doing all the right things. But the moment that you turn on him, he will turn on you. Be assured of it. And can I pause here to ask you, which king do you serve? Do you serve the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Because all other kings will be fickle. He is faithful. Have you decided what king you're going to serve? What kingdom you're going to ultimately show your allegiance to? Well, the king has found a way out. He's found a way to hang Haman. The Targum emphasizes the element of God's providence by having the angel Gabriel push Haman down right at the right moment. This is a commentary, a Jewish commentary on the book of Esther, which envisages or has this idea that right at the right moment, right as the king returns and is wondering what to do, that an angel pushes Haman down to put him in a position of compromise to give the king a reason to kill him. That's totally speculation. <laughs> we have no evidence of that. But that's kind of how it's pictured in some people's minds. Because now the king can deal with Haman. The one who wanted to kill a Jew for not falling down before him was ultimately executed on a charge of falling down inappropriately, inappropriately before a Jew. <laughs> the irony is thick. 
Why are you going to the gallows, man? Why? Why? I fell down before the queen. I was within seven steps of her. <laughs> Nothing to do with that edict that you got going against. No. No, he was too close to the queen. He did. <laughs> That's what's going on here. He broke the harem protocol and he was in trouble and so much so that notice it says that as he spoke these words, verse 8, end of the verse, as the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. In the ancient world, if you were going to be executed, they would cover your face. And we could even see that today. We've seen some modern examples of that. I think when Saddam Hussein was going to be hanged, didn't they have his face covered? And then he refused, and then he took it off. And so this is something that's common and so immediately they know what's going on and they covered his face as if to say his fate was sealed. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs, one of the seven who served in the presence of the king, we see that in chapter 1, verse 10. One of the eunuchs who were before, before the king said, Behold, presumably you could see this from the palace. Indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high, 75 feet high, which Haman made for Mordecai. He spoke, uh, Mordecai who spoke good on behalf of the king. By the way, something else, king. Yeah, he's a rat and a rascal. And by the way, he had gallows built last night for the guy who saved your life. And they're right next to his house. King looks, hmm. Now we know how he will die. And the king said, hang him high. Hang him on it. The words that, get this, that Haman longed to hear about Mordecai. When Haman showed up that morning, all he wanted to hear is the king say, hang Mordecai on that. And he would have had a great day. And now what does he hear? Hang him on that. But the him ain't Mordecai. It's Haman. And he's going to fall into the pit that he dug. And the stone is going to roll back right on him. The gallows were built right next to his house. The cruelest of all ironies in the book, Haman will die on the death instrument he constructed for his enemy because he followed the wrong king. Amazing. You could add treason to the rap sheet of Haman because maybe... In wanting to kill Mordecai, the king could argue that he was in league with others who were trying to assassinate him. Why would he want to kill Mordecai who had revealed an assassination plot? Maybe he's in some sort of discussion with a coup or you know, he wanted the royal robes and the royal steed anyway. Maybe this guy has been trying to supplant me all along. Another nail in his coffin, he's already gone anyway. But now, he's trying to kill a man who saved my life. The gallows were 75 feet high, standing next to, to Haman's house. Haman's house. Wasn't it just a few hours before that he was at the dinner table telling his friends how great he was? Wasn't he at his house? Didn't he go home one day and say, Oh, you won't believe how good my career's going and how great things are. And then he constructed the gallows because his wife told him that this is the best way to do it. And maybe they were right outside the kitchen window. 
And you know, when it says they were right next to his house, it makes me think of how much of an impact our decisions have on our house. As for me and my house, Joshua says, we will serve the Lord. You can, if you want to serve the gods that they worship, then go, if that's what you want to do. But for me and my house, see, when we make decisions, we don't make them in a vacuum, brothers and sisters. They affect others. And so, the frightful words hang him on it, and I mentioned to you at the beginning of the message that it may be that he was impaled. Now, some believe that Esther should have shown pity to Haman and pleaded for his life. L.B. Patton says, it must be admitted that her character would have been more attractive had she shown pity toward her fallen foe. If she would have pleaded for Haman's life, if after he pleaded and you know, he was falling down in front of the couch, if she would have said, oh, king, just forgive him, that sounds good. But it doesn't fit well with the story because remember, Queen Esther has become royalty. And in some ways, Mordecai and Esther are finishing what Saul should have done in the first place. Amen? Saul should have dealt with the king. You know, there's a rabbinic uh, commentary that says that before Samuel dealt with the Agagite king and killed him in 1 Samuel 15, there's a rabbinic writing that says that that king had one more night with his wife and he got her pregnant and down through the descendants came Haman. That's just, it's a rabbinic uh, tradition. But here's what Job 5 verse 13 says, 12 and 13, he sa it says, God frustrates the plotting of the shrewd so that their hands cannot attain success. He captures the wise by their own shrewdness and the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. Queen Esther is God's queen. And sometimes the most appropriate thing to do is to deal swiftly and decisively. And so it happened. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai. And the king's anger subsided. There's a story about Sir Robert Watson Watt, he uh, invented some form of radar that apparently was used in the war. On one occasion, late in his life, this man who invented radar, Watson Watt, reportedly was pulled over in Canada for speeding. And he was uh, caught speeding by a radar gun. His remark was, had I known what you were going to do with what I invented... I never would have invented it. <laughs> he wrote an ironic poem called Rough Justice with these words. Pity Sir Robert Watson Watt, strange target of this radar plot, and thus with others I can mention, the victim of his own invention. That is Haman. And Haman's story comes to a tragic close at the end of this chapter because we know that God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows to, that he will also reap. Well, as we 
wind down, I want to take you to a hill about 2,000 years ago. The Romans invented a, a form of killing people for capital offenses, and it's known to us as a cross. On the cross of Calvary when Jesus died, there were two men on his left and right. Uh, we know that they were probably, uh, I think the scriptures do tell us, they were insurrectionists and murderers. We know that of Barabbas, and we know that they were dying for what they had done wrong, that they admit that, one of them admits that from the cross. And they just so happened to be dying on these terrible torture instruments that have come down, perhaps from the Persian Empire, nailed Jesus's in his hands and his feet. Ultimately, he'll be pierced through in his side. He's on the cross, and one of the, one of the, the robbers or the thieves uh, comes to his senses, right? They're mocking him, and then one of them says, you know, we're here because for a just cause. We're here because of what we've done wrong. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. And, he, and one of them says to the Lord, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Are there hope for the Hamans of the world? Are there ho is there hope for people who have had a Haman-like fall? Maybe your pride got the best of you. You were trying to climb the corporate ladder. You put all your stock in power, prestige, the world system. You were climbing the ladder. Maybe you set a trap for a coworker. Maybe it worked. And then it came back to bite you. Jesus was hung on the tree for you and me, for sinners like you and me. The Bible says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Do you know that Jesus died for people like horrible Haman? I don't know what happened in his walk to the gallows, but here's what I'll say to you. None of us who get saved deserve his grace. None of us who end up in the kingdom of heaven deserve. You see, the king, Ahasuerus, invented something to hang Haman. The king we serve would never invent anything against you. In fact, he took the punishment that you deserve, that I deserve. He doesn't need to invent things. He's got plenty of evidence against us. <laughs> Amen? But still, he goes to the cross as though he had committed my crimes and yours. The Bible says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Galatians 3.13 But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Through faith. You know, Jesus was led out to a deaf instrument as though he were like a Haman, though he was completely innocent. This is the good news of the gospel. This is a trustworthy statement. It deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Amen? So the gospel we preach is a gospel of hope. 
but God is a God of justice. And if ever there was divine justice or poetic justice, it's in the book of Esther, chapter 7, when Haman hangs on the gallows that he created for somebody else. But interestingly enough, Jesus Christ hangs on a cross that should have been mine. And my king came to rescue me. So I find great hope in that, even in a fallen, broken, and mixed-up world, that Jesus Christ is our hope, and we preach that hope to people. And of course, once we get saved, the Lord does want us to change. He'll save you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. Amen? And he'll begin to do a work in your heart and life. Father, thank you for your providence. Thank you for this incredible story of Esther. Thank you for how you work even when we can't see what's going on, even in our most dire moments when we feel like, man, man, maybe there's no hope, no out, no way. Well, Lord, you can make a way when there seems no, to be no way. You can open seas and deal with situations that seem like there's no way it could happen because you're the God of miracles. And there are folks here tonight, including myself, who need that God of miracles to work in our lives, Lord. So would you just minister to the people that are here tonight, those who may listen to this later, if they've been, maybe they've taken a hard fall like a Haman and they wonder if there's hope. I pray that you would renew their hope. They would see a fresh vision of the cross and the resurrection. Those who are wondering about sovereignty and free will and providence, I pray that you would assure them that you've got their lives secure and you are going to lead them and guide them and supply. And your timing will work things out. And Father, for those who are maybe just going through a, a rough time and they need to know that you will finish what you started in them, that you will be true to your covenant, this great book of Esther is a reminder that God is faithful to his covenant promises that he makes to his people. If you're here tonight, you don't know Christ or you need to rededicate your life, just cry out to him in these moments. Just say, Lord, I want to know you. I believe that Jesus died on that terrible cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead and I put my trust and faith in you. If you need to rededicate your life, just do some business with the Lord. If you just need some extra faith or some encouragement, let his spirit, encourage you tonight that he's got your life in his hands and he will finish what he started in jesus name and all god's people said amen